Those of you who know me or have come through Alpha with me know I love to talk about demons. Did, did you hear how many times the gospel message had the word demon in it, demons, demons? Uh, I do. It's, uh, it's a subject I like to talk about. I'm not going to do a sermon on the gospel, however, but I, I'm going to slip in something about angels. So with an homage to Dan Brown, angels and demons, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to talk a little bit more um, about the good in the universe. Last week, uh, we, we were, that were privileged enough to make the annual celebration, it used to be called the annual meeting, now it's the annual celebration, the uh, annual celebration, we had a, a wonderful gathering, great food, we heard from our senior warden, we heard from Tyler, who did a magnificent job pointing us toward the future, and we ended by listening to Scott Pelker, and I don't know if Scott's here this morning, but Scott did a fine job of telling us kind of where we were as a body in the process of searching for a new rector, and Scott got up here and said, as he was quoting the New Testament four times, have no fear. Have no fear, Scott said. He even said that the first four times God speaks in the New Testament through the archangel uh, to Mary, to, to Jesus' mother, you know, have no fear, highly favored one, or to the shepherds in the fields, have no fear, I bring you tidings of great joy. Um, Scott's admonition to us was that we should, in this time of waiting, have no fear. Well, for those of you that were paying attention to the psalm this morning, Psalm 146, I want to direct your attention back to the last line, thinking about what Scott Pelker told us. Have no fear. So if Carrie can get 147 up there, the last line of it. <clears throat> go to verse 12, please. Well, then go one above it. <laughs> the last line of the psalm, there it is, the people's response. Let's, um, let's all say that again. But the Lord has pleasure in those who fear him, in those who await his gracious favor. Hallelujah. Scott Pelker said, have no fear. That psalm says, the Lord loves it when we fear him. Which is it? Which is it? Is the Bible contradicting itself? Is this a place where we've got clear contradiction? The two words meaning different things in the Bible. And you know that happens a lot, and that sets off a, a wildfire of debate. People love to debate about, well, the Bible says this, and the Bible says that. And clearly, if you pick things out of context in the Bible, you can pit one of God's words against God's word at times. Um, but there are certain themes. There are certain themes that run throughout the Bible. Generosity. God is always on the side of generosity. Couldn't we agree? Um, peace. Although there are wars described in the Bible and there's fighting in the Bible, there's no doubt that the overall message of God's character about that is that God is for peace, not war, right? So I believe there is a message about fearing the Lord, about fearing the Lord that'll take these two seemingly opposing verses of Scripture, fear not, and the Lord takes pleasure in those who fear, and it will bring them together. It will bring them together. And I know this is sort of an oversimplification, but I, I think it will get at the heart of what I'm trying to say. So I want to start by looking at what the Old Testament says about fear. I want to look at what the New Testament says about fear. And then I want to do a little exercise with your cards that are on your, in your lap probably now or on the seat next to you. Um, what the Old Testament means by fear, and I saw Matthew Davenport earlier, is what we did at the Citadel a lot when I was there. Um, we played a game. We didn't have a name for it, but the name of the game would be something like, what's the worst thing they can do to you? And our answer was always, shave your head and make you go to a military school. That's the worst thing that could ever happen to anybody. And so as we were preparing to sneak food out of the mess hall, or if we were preparing to, to get off campus maybe when we shouldn't have, one of the other persons in our group would look at the other guys and say, well, what's the worst thing they can do to us? Shave our head and make us go to a military school? Well, clearly we've survived that. Um, 
that's, that's the sense that the Old Testament has about the worst thing God could do to his people. The worst thing God could do to his people in the Old Testament, the shaving their head and sending them to military school, was that he would take his eyes off them. He would forsake them, a good biblical word. The psalmists, the prophets, the people of the Old Testament are constantly saying, my, we even hear it in one of the psalms this morning that I'm going to bring up, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's, it, is the, it is the worst thing that could happen to the people of Israel. God's chosen people was that he would turn their face, his face from them. It's most typified by the ironic blessing in Numbers, one of the early books of the Bible. Uh, in Numbers, there's a prayer that's prayed over one of the soon-to-be leaders of the church. And listen to this prayer as you think about God and his face and keeping his eyes on his people. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace. It's as if the writer is saying, God, please don't take your eyes off me. Please don't take your eyes off me. Your countenance, your gaze is life-saving. It's life-giving. Without that, we will die. It's the worst thing that could happen to us. Don't take your eyes off us, Lord. Um, and what they're saying, or what the writer is saying, is that if, in fact, God turned his back on them or forsakes them, he's taken true life away. Think about the first, the opening verses of John's gospel. The light that comes into the world was a true light that brought life. And John plays with those two words, light, life, light, life. And so this life-giving light that is Jesus emanates from the Father's face and gives light. The people of the Old Testament knew that. Lord, don't take your, your eyes from us. Don't take your eyes from us. And I wonder now if times in our lives, if we can think of times in our lives where we may have survived the worst thing. You know, what's the worst thing that could happen to you? It's probably worse than getting your head shaved and going to military school, I imagine. It may be cancer. It may be um, divorce. There, I'm sure the list is long. And, I'm, and many of you here have survived the worst thing that you thought could ever happen to you. I think one of the things that scares us the most in our society is that we think we worry about losing our money. We worry, what if I wake up and all my money's gone? What if you get in your car this afternoon and on your phone there's a text from your 401 or from your financial advisor who says, you won't believe it, the market's crashed, there's no money. Your house values are gone, you've got nothing. You've got no way to buy your way out of this. This thing that you've put your faith and hope in, this thing that you put your trust in, this money um, is gone. Well, money doesn't bring peace. We know that, right? We know that rich people and poor people both worry about money. You ever thought of that? If money brought peace, then rich people wouldn't worry about it because they had money. But that's not the truth. Rich and poor alike worry about money. Um, another thing about money is we all know you can't take it with you, so it doesn't sustain. You can't take money into heaven. So my point is that if we give anything, and I'm using money as an example, status in our life or priority in our life over God, we've given it its wrong place. It's inhabiting the place reserved exclusively to God because he, according to the Old Testament, is to be feared above all things. Above all things, God stands above all things, being feared above all things. And so right now, until the end of the sermon, I want you to take that word fear, and I want you to swap it with the word obsess. God is to be obsessed above all things. If we obsess about loss of anything more than God, we're misplacing our fear. So if we fear the loss of wealth, if we fear the loss of children, if we fear the loss of our marriage, anything that we ponder or obsess about other than God that are on earth, 
is a misplacement of that priority. It's a fear that's reserved only for God. That's the Old Testament sense of it. It's heavy. The New Testament sense, like Todd Davenport, I mean Todd Davenport, like Scott Pelker said, was the angels appearing and the angels calming the shepherds and the angels calming Mary and saying, have no fear. Well, I believe the angels in that word fear have two things they want to get across. One, I'm certain of because I've actually seen it happen and here's the story. When an angel appears to somebody on earth, usually their first reaction is, oh my gosh, it's an angel. I was driving home from work one day at five o'clock, this only happened once, and I was coming around the circle to my home before I went and started putting these clothes on and uh, five years ago, six years ago, and as I came around the circle of my block, I looked in my neighbor Tom and Betty Black's driveway, and I have Betty's permission to tell this story. I had to track her down over the weekend. She's busy on the weekends, not easy to find, but I got her and she said yes, thank you. So I'm coming around the corner, I look in their driveway, and there in their driveway, I saw a nine-foot-tall angel, and it was, it was silver. It was nine feet, I'm guessing. It was taller than the garage doors, and it was standing between the garage doors. She has a little planter there. It was standing between the garage doors, back to the house with its arms up, praising the Lord, it seemed to me. And I, I was so surprised, I hit my brakes, and er, you know how you do when you, I wasn't going very fast. And then I looked again, and it was still there, and by the time I could catch my breath and, and stare, it was gone. And I got home, which is another 100 feet, and turned in, ran inside, and I said, Sue, my wife, I said, honey, I saw an angel in the Black's driveway. And she's awesome. She went, yeah, sure, okay, of course you did. <laughs> my sister, she said, my sister sees them all the time. I'm like, what? I've never, you know. So I, I got up my courage, and I asked the spiritual leader of our church then, Mike Lumpkin. I said, Mike, I saw this a couple days later. I saw an angel in Betty Black's driveway. He said, yeah, of course you did, sure. And I said, you think I should tell her? And he said, well, you know, you could. It wouldn't hurt. Why not? Tell her. Yeah, you think you should tell her. So I sheepishly picked up the phone. I dialed. She answered. And uh, I said, Betty. She said, yeah, Gary. And I've lived across the street from her for 17 years. And I've done crazy things and said crazy things, but she was not expecting this. I said, Betty, um, I just have something I need to tell you. I was coming home from work the other day, and I looked over in your driveway, and I saw a nine-foot-tall angel standing in your driveway. And it was dead silence for a second. And Betty Black said, do you think he was coming to get me? And I, I laughed, and I went, well, no, because you're still here. I mean, it happened last week. No, I don't think he's coming to get you. But that's the reaction, you know, the shepherds standing there in the fields. Have no fear, Mary, have no fear. So clearly that, you know, the human, the, the, um, the sensible, have no fear, that's one meaning. Have no fear, Betty. Uh, the, other, the other meaning is that because something unusual has materialized in front of you, nothing is wrong. This is actually the way it should be the angels are saying in a way. They're getting the people at that moment to obsess about God. Jesus did it the whole time. Jesus did it the whole time he walked this earth. He said over and over again, I don't say anything that my father doesn't tell me to say. I don't do anything that my father doesn't tell me to do. Jesus was obsessed by God. I, I would love for a week that we would do that, that we would, that we would and this is me being cute, that we would check our, um, our, our phones for God texts or we'd check our God book status and see if we had any likes, or we'd, we'd follow God on Twitter. We really fear him. We would really obsess about him. I'm not too worried about Episcopalians or Anglicans going over the deep end with this God obsession. I'm really not. I think we've got a lot of room from where most of us are into obsessing 24 hours a day. Amen? But, um, yeah, I would love for us a week to adopt that. And what I mean is that we take the things in our lives that have priorities, the things that we fear, and we'd move them down, and we'd let God... The obsession about God rise to the top. But know this, brothers and sisters, we know this. We can't do that on our own. We can't just decide, okay, Gary preached. We've got cards now. We're going to do it. It won't work. 
We'll go out of here and we'll fail before we get to our car. Something will replace this obsession that I'm talking about happening. What we need to do is we just need to simply pray. And, and maybe we'll do that at the end. We'll pray for the Holy Spirit to convict us in ways that he never has before, to inspire us, to lead us, and to replace these obsessions, these misplaced obsessions in our life with an obsession for God. Um, I want to be clear about something before I end, and that is this obsession about God, the Bible's clear, has to occur in the good and the bad times. I think it's harder in the good times, actually. I think it's harder in the good times. I think in those bad times, alone in a hospital room, at a nursing home, at the side of a deathbed, or faced with bad news from a doctor, it's, it's our instinct to go, God, help me. But I think in the good times, it's difficult. Let me show you in two Psalms what that looks like. In Psalm 22, which is not the Psalm for today, it's the Psalm that David's actually praying as his city is under siege. It is also the Psalm that we hear a lot in Lent. It is the psalm that has the words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? My mouth is dry, my bones are racked, the lions circle and devour me. Carrie, can you put up 22 for a second? A couple of the verses? Yeah, start at one, that'll be fine. We'll just look at that just for a second. These are clearly bad times. Why are you so far from saving me, so far from my cries of anguish? Can you go to the next slide? <clears throat> We put our trust in you. We've cried out. Um, don't let us be put to shame. And then this is that line. I am a worm. I'm not a man scorned by everyone. The words of Christ from the cross. Thank you, Carrie. That, they get the message. Um, verses 23 and 24 of that psalm, if you could get to them, I know that'll take a second, are the ones that I want to tie up this idea about fearing the Lord. Um, there it is. This is the end of that Psalm 22. We don't usually read it. It's right before Psalm 23, which is interesting. Rescue me from the mouth of the lion. Save me from the horns of the wild ox. I will declare your name to my people. In the assembly, I will praise you. Look at that. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, honor him. Revere him, all you descendants of Israel. Think of Christ hanging on the cross. You can go back and look at that psalm at your leisure at home this afternoon, or we'll hear it a bunch during Lent. But the psalm concludes with fearing the Lord, obsessing about God. Our psalm today, Psalm 147, is the counter to it. It's the psalm that says, in the good times, fear the Lord, because it ended with that verse, fear the Lord. It said, when God is rebuilding, when God is healing, when God is returning, all of these uh, participles about God doing things actively in our lives for good, we're to fear him. So I want to remind us that the good times and the bad times both require this healthy obsession of God, because the one thing, the overall message about life in the Bible is that without God, true life is impossible because we can't live, according to Scripture, a life apart, a true life apart for God. All right, now to close. I bet for most of us, if we walked out of here today and Jay Leno or Jimmy Kimmel was doing that man-on-the-street interview and he stuck a microphone up and said, tell me who you are. Uh, before preparing for the sermon, I probably would have said what most of us would say, and that is, I'm Gary Beeson, I'm, I'm here at St. Paul serving as a priest, I'm married to Sue, I have three kids. I'd go through this list of this biography that I've created in my mind. Well, after preparing for the sermon, and after a week of thinking about it and obsessing about God, um, I'm hopeful that if, that if that microphone were presented to me, I'd say something like this. I'm Gary, I'm the child of the one true king. Father God, creator of heaven and earth, saved by his amazing grace. Because remember a couple weeks ago from up here, I said God sees us in our redeemed state. He doesn't see us in our fearful state. He doesn't see us obsessing about those things in life that take place, his place. He sees us in our redeemed state. Not scared, 
not regretful, not ashamed, not burdened, or fearful, but the new creation, but the new creation. So you have cards there that uh, Bonnie and I talked about last night when she heard this sermon at St. Timothy's. Just put the cards in your hand. And what I'd like for us to do as a means or a way of thinking about obsessing about God this week is imagine, do you remember the cardboard testimonies from years ago where people stood up and had one word written on one side about the way they used to be and then they flipped the cardboard over and on the back was a redeemed version. So it may have said scared on the front. I may have a scared and then when I flipped it over it would say uh, courageous in Christ. So it was this contradiction and the cardboard, the opposite sides of the cardboard contradicted themselves to make a point. So, uh, Bonnie and I thought for this week, on one side of that card, write the word God, but write your favorite word for God, Yahweh, King of Kings, I am, uh, Redeemer, Healer, whatever your favorite word for God is, write that on the, on the f- one side of the card. And then on the other side of the card, um, write that thing you're obsessing about. So well, they're going to pass out some pens. You don't have to do it right now, but um, you want to do it right now? If you want to do it right now, if you want a pen, just raise your hand. Bonnie can hit you with a pen. But that would be the thought this week, and that you could keep it over your visor, you could tuck it in your Bible, you could put it on your nightstand, you could put it wherever, wherever you find yourself most often obsessing about other things, and begin to replace those earthly obsessions with an obsession about God. And while she's doing that, I'm going to tell you what it looks like to obsess about God. So Boy Scouts, will you stand up for a second? This is what it looks like when people obsess about God. It came to me this week, uh, reading the Daily Office. There were four chaplains, four chaplains, uh, one an army chaplain, excuse me. These four chaplains gave their lives to save other soldiers during the sinking of the USS Dorchester during World War II. They helped other soldiers board lifeboats. They gave up their own life jackets when the supply ran out. 230 of the 900 men aboard the ship were rescued. But the life jackets offered little help in protecting men from hypothermia, which killed most of them in the water. The temperature was 34 degrees Fahrenheit. By the time additional rescue ships arrived, hundreds of dead bodies were seen floating on the water, kept up by their life jackets. The chaplains, who all held the rank of lieutenant, were Methodist Reverend George Fox, Jewish Rabbi Alexander Good, Roman Catholic priest John Washington, and Reformed Church in America Reverend Clark Poling. As the vessel sank, the four chaplains calmed the frightened soldiers and sailors, aided in the evacuation of the ship, and helped guide wounded men to safety. The chaplains also gave up their own life jackets. This is a quote. As I swam away from the ship, I looked back. The flares had lighted everything. The bow came up high, and she slid under. The last thing I saw, the four chaplains were up there praying for the safety of the men. They had done everything they could. I never saw them again. They themselves did not have a chance without their life jackets. The chaplains were honored with many things in our country. You can imagine stamps. Um, There was a day named after them. They were all given uh, the Purple Heart and the Medal of Honor. But here's what I want you to hear. Chaplain Good, Chaplain Poling, and Chaplain Washington had all served as leaders in the Boy Scouts of America. Those were men who knew what it meant to obsess and fear about God. They obsessed about God more than their own lives. They obsessed about God more than their futures. They obsessed about God to sacrificing themselves for others. Let's pray.
You can be seated. Heavenly Father, I don't know what to say. I, um, I can't imagine uh, courage and bravery like that. I pray for all of us, Lord, that if uh, that were presented in our lives, we'd behave in the same manner, but I can't guarantee I would. I need you, Lord. I need your spirit um, to come, take up residence in a permanent way and change me. Uh, help me, Lord, to obsess. Help us, Lord, to obsess about you morning, noon, and night, in our rising and in our laying down so that we can be a God-glorifying people to this community and the world. And I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.